Amen. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I thought I had almost the perfect one. For the first time in 30 years, all of our kids were gone. There were the other relatives. And I was going to talk Carolyn into going to El Cholo, a Mexican restaurant, but oh no, she had to cook a turkey. I tell you, that would have been, wouldn't that have been the best? But anyway, uh, this is a time of year when it brings out the best in people and the worst. This is a time when people are happy, this time we call Advent, preparing for Christmas. It's also a time when there's a lot of sadness and sorrow with missing family members, and it, it just highlights all that's right and all that's wrong in life. And it comes out in us. When I was first ordained uh, 30 years ago, a lady told me this story, whether true or not, that she was shopping at the mall, and she got to her car, and she realized she'd left her purse back in the store. She went, oh, no. So she went running back in there, hoping at least to get, you know, even if they took the money, her driver's license. And she came up to the store. There's this little boy standing right outside holding her purse. She came up. She said, young man, that's my purse. He said, I know. I saw you leave it. She said, and you stood there and you watched that? He said, yes. She said, what a good little boy you are. He's, she said, let me see if I got something for you. And she opened up her purse and she opened her wallet. And she remembered she had had one $20 bill in there and there was now one 10 and two fives. And she said, what is this? He said, well, last time I was a good little boy, she didn't have change to reward me. So I cashed it for you. <laughs> Even if it's not true, it should be. It's a great story, she told me, but... Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, 2010. We now, of course, use the terms common era and before the common era, but he is still the hinge of history that divides it. And in the year 2010, as we look at this Advent, we're going to take a look at, I believe, some of the most profound 18 verses that were ever written in all of literature, the prologue of John. John, as he's writing his gospel, not only at the beginning, not only summarizes this incredible story that is to follow, and John thinks you've read one of the other gospels. He's writing this near the end of the first century. He'll say this is before John the Baptist was thrown in prison, and then move on. Like you know that John the Baptist was put in prison. He didn't explain himself. And as he's trying to summarize the depth of what this incarnation event is all about, he comes and he speaks about light a lot. And one of the facets, that of course comes from a girl's favorite friend, diamonds. The facet is the cut on the side that gives the color and the clarity, as you will, as well as the carrot, the size of it. And one of the facets of this truth we're calling this series Radiance is you cannot stand in the light of the radiance of Christ and not have two things happen. Christ's light reveals and it also revises. Christ's light reveals. The light came into the darkness, and this is universally true for everybody. No matter who you are or what your culture, whatever you believe, the light of the person of Christ reveals life like nothing else. And it also, though, confronts us and revises us. You stand in the presence of this bright light. You either see or you go blind. Nobody stays neutral on this. And just as you read, with the, if the Pharisees truly were blind, they would have no guilt. But since they say, I don't want to know, they blinded themselves and they lost the ability to see. It is impossible to stand in the lumens, the, if you will, billion candle watt power of the light of the gospel of Christ and not be transformed. 
And nobody summarizes that as well as John in the beginning of his gospel. If you've got your Bible, turn with me over to page 862 in your pew Bible. And let's look at the beginning of this incredible truth. As I said, John thinks that you have read one of the other gospels, and he summarizes it in a more reflective way. Now, I have to apologize to you because we're going to be looking at some Greek. And I was always drilled into me in seminary, you don't use Greek and Hebrew in your sermon. It's supposed to be like your underwear. You're supposed to have them on but not showing, you know. So I guess I'm kind of low riding here this morning. But as uh, <laughs> there is so much truth in this that I want you to see that. Let's read the English first. Let's read verses 1 through 9 together out loud of his great prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. As you look at this up here on this first Greek slide, in arche, you get archaic, in the beginning was hathlagos, the word, that's a definite article. And the word logos in pros was with ton theon, the God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with the God. And theos, God was halagos, the word. And the word was God. Now the reason I'm pointing this out is that John is obviously echoing back the Breshita Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the very beginning was the word. And the word was with the God. But now he doesn't want to say that the son is identical to the father. And so he leaves out the definite article here. And God, and not a God, was the word. Now the reason I bring this up, what does it really matter that we're doing all this deep studying? Well, what matters is reality is a good place to live. And people in L.A. should try that sometime. But it's... <laughs> And reality, truth needs to exist. Good theology, if nothing to answer, bad theology. You don't need to know a lot about sailing if you're going to sail around the marina in Marina del Rey. You get on the other side of that breakwater and you head out across the Pacific, you better know a little bit about the ocean. You don't need to know a lot about physics if you're a little toddler teaching them, don't get close to the step, you'll fall, boom, boom. You're going to put your fanny in a rocket and go to the moon, you better know a little bit more about physics. I can play a Mozart concerto with great feeling on a kazoo, <laughs> but it loses something. And what's happening today in America, as I said, this stunning thinning of theology. And this concerns me for one reason, because America is right now the leader in the world, and that is also true in the church. And as the church is exploding around the world, it's not exploding in America, but we are exporting our theology to them. And whatever hits America, goes a little strange. You take Hinduism and it hits America, what do you get? New Age. You take Islam, you hit America, what do you get? Farrakhan and a new kind of Islam. 
you have here what hits America, you take Christianity, and good people, just bad theology, Mormon, Christian science, Masonic, and Jehovah Witnesses. And again, I want to keep saying, I had somebody pressing my shirt after the last service, they're good people. I have people come to me and say, you know, I have Mormon friends and they're nicer than you. Like, that's hard to do, you know, I mean. <laughs> I'm not talking about nice people, I'm talking about what they believe. As I've always said, uh, our kids, most of the, well, not most, a third of their friends were Mormon and we were in Denver. And our, I had Mormons babysit our kids all the time, and I told you that's because they don't drink your beer. But they're great people, and as they <laughs> care about them. But you will have, Jehovah Witness will come to you, and they'll point out on this, this slide back up here again of, to show this of this bottom, that Jesus is not divine. And why they'll do that is they'll say, there's no definite article in front of the bottom, and hotheos was hot lagos. Well, that's, first of all, if, if you know it, Greek at all, you would know that, first of all, an anathrust precedes the verb, it's definitive with the predicate nominative, and that's a blessing to your heart, I know. But it means that when the predicate nominative means the subject, you don't need to have that. If you ask a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon friend, great people, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They'll say, absolutely. If you say, do you think Jesus is God the Son? Whole pause. And this is one of the reasons the New World Translation that Jehovah Witness used that they use this. By the way, they say this 28 different times. 213 other times when there's not a definite article, they say it is the God that is out there. But what John is trying to say is, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was God, God is the Word. In the Trinity, there's no good analogies. There's no good analogies to illustrate the Trinity. And my Jewish friends, the rabbis, when we get together, I ask them, is the Trinity the biggest problem for you, for us as Christians? And they said, no, nah, I mean, it's a problem. But what really bothers them is the incarnation. God, carne. Carne means meat. Chili con carne is beans with meat. Incarnation is God with meat meat. This is blasphemy. This is heresy. This is saying that Michelangelo became one of his statues, that the creator became a part of his creation, that Mozart became one of his concertos, that Pissarro became one of his paintings. This is craziness. And this is exactly what John is saying. I've touched him. I have know him. We bear witness to this. The word was God. He was identical to God, and yet he was not the father. No good analogies in that sense, but the truth that is there. In fact, at this time, why John is doing this, brilliant Jewish theologian by the name of Philo is down in Alexandria. And Hellenistic Judaism, that means the Judaism at this time of the Greek. And the Greeks loved all these ethereal things, and he was talking about the word. In fact, the Targum, any of you who are Jewish or have Jewish friends, was kind of like the living Bible for the Jews after the exile and they have commentaries in it. And they quit saying just the angel of God, and they started to say this sense, this word memra, which is the word of God. John is taking exactly the discussion that's going on in the theological marketplace and saying, I've got this, I've solved it for you. In the beginning was the Son, Jesus. He was the word. And word communicates. Do you have an idea, and then you go and search for the right word, kind of like clothes over a body. 
Or are words more the mold that you make thought that holds your thought and creates it? And the answer is the latter. When you pick a word in your thinking, you are not only just trying to describe to somebody across the airwaves, you are actually forming thought around that. Jesus is the word. He is the communication of God. I had somebody uh, this last week said, Pastor, I'd like a word with you. I said, which one? I could tell it wasn't going to be positive, but a word <laughs> with you. What, what do you mean by that? Hey, man, I want to talk to you. And the ultimate communication of this, do you want to see who God is? The Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul said, he is the visible image of the invisible God. In him all things hold together. And so this word that is in the beginning with him, it reveals to us. It's this creative power. Now, notice what he says. Go ahead to the next slide. Go to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Ignesto came to him, anthropos, anthropology if you study that, who was sent para from God, name was Johannes, John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Next slide. He's telling this story. The same came for witness, marturion. Remember we talked about martyr means to be a witness. Why did that word martyrdom come? Because they stood and they said we stand for Christ even to the point of death. So that's where the word martyr came from. Witness that he might testify about the photos. Photon? About the light. So that all, pantes, pisteusen, may believe through him. All might believe through him. John was not the light. John wasn't even reflecting the light. John was saying in a court of law, I saw the light. Next slide. He was not the light, but he came again to testify about the light. John, the Gospel of John is writing about John the Baptist is reemphasizing this. He is not the light, but he bears witness to that. Finally, next slide. The true light that enlightens Alethane, Phos there, every man was coming into cosmon. Cosmos, the cosmos. God outside of creation and outside of all things, he was coming into also, we use the term the world, that which we see and know. And as he comes, he reveals. And what I love about the beginning, there are moral and spiritual compasses out there in all the other great religions. There's really only two religions, the Eastern and the Western. Hinduism and its reform movement, Buddhism, about 400 years before Christ. Then there's the Western, Judaism. We think the fulfillment in Christianity of Judaism. And then Islam later writes off on the side of that. Hindu friends that we have are, are right. There is more to the world than this physical. There is something on the other side that's as real as your feet in your socks right now. What Jesus said, though, man does not live by bread alone, the physical, but by what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God, that word. Our Buddhist friends are right. Just trying to fulfill every desire you've got as you're sitting there right now is not the answer to life. They say get rid of all desire. Jesus says, no, if you're hungry, come to me and eat. You'll never hunger again. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink, and you'll never be thirsty again. But they're pointing to the right way. Our Jewish friends who know you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself are right. 
difference is our Jewish friends, they don't have a savior. And it's not about just good deeds and repentance. For God so loved the world that he took the initiative, he gave his only son that whoever believes have everlasting life. And our Muslim friends are right. There is a holy God. And you and I, we go ahead and live the life we want, but there is a right way to live. Submit Islam. And the Muslim is somebody who submits. Where they're wrong is, though, that God has already paid for this sin of me and of you and his son's death on that cross. And he not only wants to forgive, he wants to accept. So this understanding of this, this blind man, people, Hindus have a great story. You've, I'm sure, heard this. Four blind men, they're describing an elephant. And they go up and one of them grabs the trunk and says an elephant's like a snake. Another one grabs the leg and says, no, it's like a tree. Another one grabs the tail and says it's like a, some wheat. And another one grabs his belly and says, no, it's like a big rock. The point being, nobody really knows what God is like. Not according to John. By the way, the only bad thing about that story is they're all blind. <laughs> but if you open your eyes, you can see what an elephant looks like. And if you open your eyes, you can see the truth here. I like that the little blind snake ran into the little bunny on a trail and they said, who are you? He said, I don't know, I'm blind. And the snake said, well, let me help you out. And he curled around the rabbit and he said, well, you've got fuzzy little nose and big ears. And I tell my goodness, you're a rabbit. And the rabbit, went, wow, who are you? He says, I don't know. And he says, let's see, you're, you're long and you're cold and you've got scales and fangs. Why, why you're an IRS agent. I only like to use that, uh, sorry. <laughs> that normally works in April, but anyway, that, I don't think that. But the world, you don't know who you are and I don't know who I am because this city, this wonderful, horrible city is so dark. It is so dark. And it doesn't even know how dark it is out there. And if you and I let the world tell us who we are, whether you're pretty enough, whether you're good enough, whether you're successful enough, whether you're desired, if you let your family tell you who you are, God is the one who tells us who we are. And he says, you are so valuable to me, I would give my only boy for you. Not theoretically, not hyperbole, actually. I want you that much. And this light comes into the darkness, and all people see this light. When, and what, as we learn so much from the church overseas, as it's exploding over there, and as they, these stories, God doesn't need anybody even we're called to bear witness to him, but if he can't get people there, he'll do it. We have people in our church here. She's a wonderful lady, raised as a Muslim, had a dream about Jesus. She lived right up over here, went running around her house telling her husband, I saw Jesus, I saw Jesus. He said, go to bed, go to bed. She said, I saw Jesus. She came walking in here, and one of our prayer team was down here, and she discovered, because being raised as Muslim, Jesus is a prophet. But he came to her in a sense of a dream and saying, no, I am the son of God. I've talked with atheist communists when we were over in Harbin, China, who said that they've seen dreams of Jesus. In Cairo, under Sharia law, you can't share your faith as a Christian, but Muslims are seeing dreams of Jesus all the time. God will get through to anybody who wants to know. But you and I, the incredible privilege, can't help. You don't have to convince anybody about Jesus. You just need to bear witness to the light. You're not the light. I'm not the light. You know that. He is the light. Remember those three questions, if you forgot. Try it this Advent season. When you interact with people, and you have to earn the right to be heard. 
by the way, I want to tell you, any of you that go to sporting events, John 3.16, nobody knows what that means but Christians. But anyway, uh, holding that up. What, do you have spiritual beliefs? Everybody's got spiritual beliefs. And you don't tell them what you believe unless they ask. Say to somebody, hey, do you have spiritual beliefs? And they'll go, yeah, I got spiritual beliefs. What do you think about the person of Jesus? Everybody's fascinated about Jesus. They can't stand his followers. But they're fascinated about Jesus. Now here they're expecting you to pull out the big Bible with the portable baptismal and put them in it, you know, and <laughs> jump them. So don't tell them anything unless they ask you. And this is the thing that is a, with a degree in psych that just bewilders me and it's fascinating. Ask him this. Would you want to know if you're wrong about who Jesus is? You will be shocked the responses you get. Many people will say, yeah, I would like to know if I was wrong. Say, well, let's pray that the Lord shows himself to you. Many people will say, no. And that's exactly what John was recording about the man born blind. Look at the, turn back over to John, the ninth chapter. Let's look at the beginning of this encounter that Christ has with him. Page 871. Jesus has just really ticked the crowd off. He must have been so frustrating to be a disciple. Every time he got a huge gathering, he'd say something that offended him, and they'd all just leave. And what he was doing, he wasn't about building a crowd. He's about finding disciples, and he's always sifting. He just said, before Abraham was, I am, and they were about ready to kill him for blasphemy. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Pause, that's a great question. This man was born blind. Why? Did his parents blow it? Were they great sinners in the consequences of their life that he has to live with that? Or as the Jews at this time believed that there could be a consciousness within the womb, did he as a young child sin and therefore God punished him? Who's to blame? This guy never had a shot at looking. And Jesus gives him an answer that is a little almost harder. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Pause, why would Jesus would do that? Because they believed there was medicinal value in great orator's mouth. I don't think Jesus thinks that, but he thinks that. And so he puts on his eyes and says, go and wash. He went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors of those who had seen him before said, isn't this guy that used to beg and said, yeah. And I said, no, it's like him. I like this discussion. It's like he's a third person in the room. He kept saying, I'm the man. They said, how are your eyes open? He said, the man called Jesus made mud, put on my eyes, said, go wash, Salome, wash. I washed and received my sight. He said, where is he? He said, I don't know. So Jesus does this. And then they bring him before the court. The court says, what did he do to you? He tells him. They're going, he's not a godly man. He did this on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Why couldn't he have waited until Monday? Why is he doing it on the Sabbath? And Jesus is deliberately doing this, showing that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And so they throw the man out. Jesus finds him as you turn over in verse 35, when Jesus heard they'd driven him out, he found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? 
He said, who is he, sir? Tell me that I may believe in you. And you know Jesus is smiling when he says this. You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment that those who do not see may see, and that those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said, surely we're not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have guilt. But since you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, if you were truly ignorant and didn't know anything, you wouldn't be guilty. God doesn't hold you accountable for what you don't know. It's your heart, it's not your eyes, that you go, I am completely. I already see. I have got life figured out. I've got my little philosophy. I don't want anybody to interrupt it. That's what condemns us. It's not what we know. It's what we reject. And there's so many of us in here, God shows light in our life saying, I want you to move you to the next level. I want to help you. Trust me and just go where I'm showing you. And we're saying no, no. Some of you that came in at the beginning of the service and prayed, Lord, with Rosie, forgive me my sins like I forgive those who sin against me. God listens to that. Okay. The level you forgive others, Jesus said, will be the level you're forgiven. It's not condoning. It's not saying what they did is right. It's saying I want light in this dark situation. I want it to be better, not worse. And the moment we refuse to forgive those who have harmed us, I mean refuse. Not that it's not easy. Not that it's easy. Your emotions aren't a faucet. You just turn on and off like, no, I like them. No, I don't. When they really hurt you, but to say, Lord, if you forgive them through me, it gives us this ability to see. And we trick ourselves into thinking we believe because we've intellectually agreed to it. Pascal had a great line. He said, reason is the poor crippled man who rides on the shoulders of the dumb brute called desire. What he means, our brains are a little weak man and the big dumb blind brute called desire, we're just going along for a ride. We want something and we use our minds to justify what we want. It's not because we really think it's so right, it's because we want it. And God understands this in this sense of the word that enlightens every man was coming into the world. Sincerity does not equal innocence. Have you not sincerely thought you were totally right and they were totally wrong and later as you reflected on it, say, well, I'm 10% wrong, they're 90% wrong, and then you realize, I was wrong all along. I did that just because I was insecure or just because I wanted that or just because I wanted to get back at them. It's this light. There are spiders and there are salamanders, and there are fish in Carlsbad Caverns as we sit here. It's not that they have bad eyesight. They don't have eyes. They've adapted from generation upon generation of living in the darkness and cave life, and they've lost it. And if you and I, when we go into this city, we let these people in the darkness lead us around by the nose hairs of what to believe and how to act and how to live, it's not their fault. It's ours. If we let blind people lead us around, how can we blame them? But God calls us not just to not be led around by them, but to give this word of hope. I remember 
when we were growing up, I, I love being so old. We grew up in times when stuff that was totally toxic was available. <laughs> Bring back lead paint. But remember, they used to, you could actually buy that, that incredible phosphorus paint that glows in the dark, you know, like they put on your Timex watch. I can remember buying this stuff and painting ourselves up. I'm sure it's like nuclear waste, but it probably explains a lot of my thinking. But as you know, and then you do is to get my brother to shine the light on our face till it got really bright and then shut off the light and you could run around and go scare our younger brother with that. But the thing about phosphorus is that you have to get it in the light and it gets charged up from the photons and then you, it slowly goes dark. Your kids, their decals, you know, of the stars on the ceiling, you turn the lights on, it's bright for a while and slowly the radiation dissipates. You are so smart what you are doing right now. This is an incredibly dark world. And as you come together and as you sing to the Lord and as you hear the word of God broken and proclaimed, why it's so important for you to be in a small group. It's like shining the light on each other for a while, charge each other up so you can see what the next step is as you go out. But pity the man or woman who thinks that either they got to be the light bulb for Jesus, got to be loving, got to be perfect, got to be right. No, you don't. You just tell people about the light. You just plant the seeds. It's God's responsibility to save them, not yours or mine. You just do the right thing and leave the consequences with the Lord. We don't need to change this city on our power. We just have to bear witness to the light. And that's what all this planning is about. And the only way you and I can be this kind of light for God is if, in the words of John, we have embraced. It is not seeing it is actually being enveloped by the photos hatheon, the light of God, of Christ. Reading this last week about uh, Leonardo da Vinci, and uh, I never realized, of course, when he was, you know, da Vinci was much more of a, well, just crazy genius in his inventions and certainly in the sculpting. He wasn't that much of a painter, though he obviously painted some great works. In Milan, Italy, I have not seen, I know many people who have, his Last Supper. I just read this last week. It took him 18 years sketching all along the face of Jesus that he would use. It's on a little wall in a convent over there. And at first he found a young model, a young guy who's working the fields that looked just so alive, and the common man. And he painted and he sketched out this would be the face of Jesus to give him the idea. But then he thought, no, that's too earthly. So he got kind of this removed picture of Jesus to show his divine side. But then that looked kind of ethereal. And it took him for 18 years until he finally could get the face of Christ. When he was done with it, by the way, he had such a beautiful goblet that Jesus was drinking out of at the Last Supper at the Seder meal, which obviously never got right, that one of his friends came and said, that is an incredible drawing of that goblet. He got rid of it. He scratched it out and started over because he didn't want anything taking away from Jesus being in the center there. You know, the last three years of his life, he lived in southern France because he so had made the families in Florence so upset. The king of France brought him in there. Do you know that for 18 years, he never took communion because he felt so guilty for his life on the side? He wasn't worth it. Finally, before he died, just months before, he couldn't walk anymore, he was so infirm, he had his friends help bring him down to the cathedral there where he could come in and take the sacrament 
of forgiveness. For 18 years he went to bed thinking, I hope I don't die tonight. For 18 years he thought, I got to try harder, try harder. When God all along said, I love you. I accept you. Come to me. Yes, I am holy, but I have already picked up the bill. And Advent for you and I is getting ready when Christ comes back, is simply getting ready in our life to receive this kind of love and forgiveness that the light of the world comes. What's the radiance in your life right now? Kind of a little vision check. It's God shining stuff in your life. I know he's in mine that's saying, Mark, we need to deal with this. We need to take this up to the next level. Say, Lord, I want to take you by the hand. How about the radiance in this church? Are you helping this church with your time and your money and your effort? I don't want you to quit living. You've got to be out there and be salt and light. But are you helping at all here? Are you letting other people carry you? How about the radiance in this city? I mean, this is a dark place. It's a wonderful place, but it is a dark place. Are you being willing some of the darkest people out there that are so lost away in this corrupt blindness of being able to just shine a little light into their life with love and say, if you ever want to know an answer, I've got one for you. And what about this world? As we go and we partner with our friends downtown and around the world and shine the light of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. God sent a man named John to bear witness to the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. For the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. Let's receive him. Shall we pray? God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, how we thank you, O Lord, that you did not leave this planet just spinning in the darkness, lost in its sin and decaying, but God, out of your great love, you stepped out of heaven and came down that back staircase, born as that child in that manger. And thank you, God, that you didn't just come to pay for our sin and show us how to live and then leave. But Lord, you've given your Holy Spirit to empower us and to use us. But God, thank you most of all that your Son is coming back, King of King. And when we stand with all of our loved ones and the angels and all those that have loved you, and the real adventure begins, and sorrow is transformed into unspeakable joy, and darkness into light forever. Thank you, Lord, that you let people as myself and as others have the privilege to share in your work. So God, I pray that this would be a light, not just here on the hill, but as we go into this city, and that, Lord, many people will find out there is a reason to have this hope, and his name is Jesus. Bless now, Lord, our tithes and our offerings as we give them to you. Help the poor, help those that are in need. Thank you, God, for this church generosity. Over 300 people were sent around the world, over 2 million world miles this last year telling the good news of Christ. Clothe them, feed them, and may Jesus get all the attention. It's his church. For his sake we pray. Amen.